would you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last Sunday of our little Reclaimed series, and we're at the end of 1 Timothy. Somehow we've made it through the whole thing. Chapter 6, and if you, uh, if you don't have it on your phone, your Bible, I do have it broadcasting behind us. I used to be such a snob about you got to have it, the Bible, you got to have the book in your hand. I thought, well, wait a minute, if I'm that picky about the, the means with which the, the word is commanded, I probably need to go back and get a scroll because that's, you know what I'm saying? So before I get too picky about it, get some stone tablets up here, please. Would you turn your stone tablet to the book of First Timothy? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And if you wonder if that's true, just watch the next reality show that comes out. People getting rich, making a fool of themselves. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now go down to verse 17, just for the sake of time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's read that one more time in verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly Life, And that's what we're going to talk about today, reclaiming your life. In, let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that you, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And today I pray that this word doesn't serve as an academic exercise, but as a Holy Spirit-inspired moment of downloading from our heads and to our hearts that spills out into changing how we act and, and what we do with our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. How many of you have seen the X-Men movies? All right. Okay, that's most of you. I, maybe not everybody, but when I first saw it, I was like, what the heck? Why is Magneto the guy? It's like, why is he the big guy, the, the big, powerful leader of the X-Men people? Like, what's his superpower? Being Nito? Like, it didn't... When I, you know, like when I first saw him, because you think about it, there's storm, right? Like it makes tornadoes and lightning. Wow, that's awesome. Or the people that change into stuff, or you get the fire dude. Like all these amazing powers. Magneto. And then I realized, oh, magnet. Never mind. He actually, the world is made of metal. <laughs> that's an awesome power. You can like lift up the Golden Gate Bridge. Magneto. <laughs> Sorry, this was more fascinating to me in my head than maybe it is in real life, but I... <laughs> I... 
I just thought that makes sense to me now. The, the superpower that is the most subtle is the most powerful. And Paul was talking about the love of money being the root of all evil, one of the most misquoted scriptures ever. And you think about it, there's a lot of things you think that's evil, that, you know, like war is evil, these things are evil, but the root of them all, the magneto underlying, the magnetic pull is of money. And it's a, I mean, it's super powerful, the, the, the pull of it, it's easy to fall in love with it. Maybe you don't know this, but you, let's do a little history lesson just for, for fun and, and, and giggles. The, the Mayflower. You guys remember the Mayflower, the pilgrims? We are here because of the, the pilgrims and the Mayflower. Okay, remember that? Okay, did anybody know why, how on earth, a religious separatist group who had actually relocated to Holland by this point could afford to charter a boat across the ocean? Refugees, how did they afford to do it? Turns out there was an investor involved. True story. They came here seeking religious freedom, but it was because some investors in London with the Virginia Company started selling shares of an investment in the New World. Now, it turns out they weren't as smart as an investment as you'd like because they didn't factor in for things like getting dead, uh, your investment. But if you wanted to be a part of this investment... You had to put 12 pounds per share in it. If you didn't have any money, you could be a settler. And you could actually get, if you worked for seven years, you got your one share as part of the investment with it. So they came because of religious freedom, but it was powered because of money. Money, as powerful as it is, let, let's, let's, uh, let's think of some other things where money has been really uh, at work. In Africa, when, a, when an endangered species... Uh, is happening, like there's a, a species that's being hunted to extinction, rhinoceros and uh, elephants, and, and it's because they're ivory, because their tusks are worth so much money. The, one of the most successful ways to have saved these species is actually selling hunting trips, making it worth more money to hunt them legally than to sell their ivory illegally, and money, it is not because they feel bad for the rhinoceros. They're saving it because money was the power that saved him. In 1964, the Supreme Court ruled that we could no longer separate, there was segregation in restaurants was illegal. A great law. When they took it to court, it happened because a restaurant owner in Birmingham said, well, this is my restaurant. You can't tell me what to do, federal government. This is a state's rights issue. You know what they used to win the case? The Commerce Clause. Money. The government said, because you are doing business across state lines and the guy's selling sandwiches, like, I'm not selling, I'm just selling sandwiches to here. And the government says, where did you get your ketchup from? Where would your beef come from? And they weaponized the commerce clause. And so that's, to this day, many of the laws, whether it's gun control, marijuana, are not passed because it's right or it's wrong, but based upon the commerce clause. Fascinating, isn't it? It should be that we, we know that it's wrong to segregate on race, but we didn't as a nation, and so we said money was the only way we're going to make this happen. And this last week on an episode of uh, most, a More Perfect, a, a podcast by NPR, they, they talked about the story of the Commerce Clause, and you listen to these people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe in God, saying that how is it possible that, that maybe money actually gets us to our higher values, so this is, they were justifying it, saying, well, money is, you know, but I think that the Bible, what it's clearly saying is that that, <laughs> that isn't our higher value. 
Your higher value as a nation was money. And they're desperately trying to figure it out. And what Paul is saying here is as believers, as followers of Jesus, that we get to not participate in that. That falling in love, now by the way, if I would have said this was a sermon on greed, ain't nobody show up for that. (laughs) Tim Keller tells a story of him doing a sermon series on the seven deadly sins and he got to greed and his wife said the night before, you know that nobody's gonna be there tomorrow night, right? It'll be your least attended service of the week and he, she was right. (laughs) And here's the thing, mostly because you don't think you are. So when you think of greed as like Scrooge McDuck, you remember Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> Rolling around in piles of cash and dollar signs. And if you think of greed as that, then I get that. But that's not what Paul is setting it up. He's saying that this thing, this money, is so powerful that you could fall in love with it. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? You can't serve God and not Satan. He juxtaposes money against it. He knew that it would be that pervasive in our hearts. When you think of it as greed, wringing your hands and rolling around in a pile of cash, that doesn't make sense because none of us really, well, maybe, I don't know. Most of us don't do that. But when you think of greed as the way that Paul is defining it, which is the love of money, and he uses the word philagrego. Is Michael Easley in here? Can we get him to give me the Greek on that? It's the word for buddy love, like high five, you're my buddy, I want you to be. He's talking about that with your, that's your friend. Money is your friend and you've taken hold of it. Loving it means when I married my wife, we took each other's hand at the, at the altar, and I took hold of her hand. And the love of money is simply grabbing hold of the wrong thing. It's when you young guys get married, girls too, this is important, but you especially you dudes, you learn this lesson. If you haven't already, you're going to. When you get married, your bros, they're important, but not as important as they were yesterday. Your video games are awesome. But your wife needs you. You've taken hold of the wrong thing. And that's, at the end of the day, the love of money being the root of all evil is literally just grabbing hold of the wrong thing. And if you think of it like that, every one of us can literally think probably right now of a moment where I've grabbed hold of money in a way that has uh, ruined or harmed or brought pain and grief. And I want to encourage you today, we're going to talk about how to let go of that, to let go of this temporal stuff, to let go of the arrogance and the pride that comes along with it, and to take hold of, verse 19, the life that is truly life. You want to do that? Well, let's do it. <laughs> I'm about to applaud myself. <laughs> I think T.D. Jakes does that. Letting go of the temporal, this world, the language of what he's saying, verse 6, is godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Have you been on the business end of a baby being born? Okay, first of all, you never unsee that. Second, they got nothing. You hear that the, 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 you, know, you never see a hearse uh, with, a, with a U-Haul behind it? That baby wasn't like, hang on, I forgot. So, you know, it's, that's it. I guess the placenta, but then I don't know. So technically, you bring something into this world. But if we have food and clothing, we'll have contentment with that. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And you folks that work for Dave Ramsey, you have a front row seat to this every day. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. When you have held on to this that is not Jesus and money is the one that is the magneto, the power that you don't even recognize and you're grabbing onto it, you pierce your heart with many griefs. And if you wonder if that is true and accurate in our society, a study was just released, they release this number every year, that the consumer debt in America has just soared to $13.15 trillion last year. Okay, That doesn't include the $19 trillion that our government owes to China or whoever. This is, this is us. $13.15 trillion dollars. The report said it was the fifth consecutive year of annual household debt growth with increases in mortgage, student, auto, and credit card categories. When you hear news pundits talking about the economy increasing and the only way it's going to come back, what do they say has to happen? More banks have to loan more money. In our world, when we've run out of money, we just say, well, I'll actually borrow some money and get some more stuff. In the old days, when you ran out of money, you just ran out of stuff. I guess I won't get any more stuff because I got no more money. Now they're giving us more money for more stuff. And so what's happened in our life, not in a way that is um, intentional, maybe for some, but most of us not intentional. We bought that car because we thought we needed it. We bought this you know, thing because we thought we needed it. And before we know, we are in this, what Paul calls a trap of debt. And one of the categories that they list there is student loans. And you guys are probably getting tired of me harping on student loans. But dadgummit, it, I'm angry. Because what's happened is, a, what is a trap? If you've been a hunter before, you know, for Tim Bassanio sitting back there, dude is a bow hunter you know, he sits up in the woods and here comes a deer just doing what the deer normally does, eating or whatever, and before long, he gone. And it's a trap. With student loans, what's happening in our country right now is we're telling our young people, the only way you're ever going to get ahead in this life to get a hold of this American dream is to make a lot of money. And the only way you're going to make a lot of money is if you go to a college that's a really good college, not just any college, but a really good college, whether or not you can afford it or not. Oh, if you can't afford it, well, we'll loan you money for it. And what have the colleges done? More free money. So, well, you know, we're going to, we need to get this better so now we can compete with this other college. So do they increase their quality of education? No, they built a new pool. Because they know that you and I were like, I don't know about the quality of education, but man, that spa... That workout center, that's rocking. And so every year for the past decade, college tuition has gone up inch by inch by 10% here, by 12% there, to the point now where we've got literally $1.4 trillion in student loans in our country. And this is what this article in the Wall Street Journal said. At the year's start, 11% of the uh, nearly $1.4 trillion in student debt was delinquent. That's a lot. They define delinquent as an account that hadn't received a payment in the last 90 days. And that figure understates the problem. Listen to this. It's amazing how you can cook a book and make it sound better than it is. Roughly half of all the student debt, that's 700 million, 
is held by borrowers who aren't required to be making payments because they're still in school, unemployed, or for other reasons. You strike out those instances, and the share of delinquent student debt is more like 22%, the New York Fed says. The debt that's happening with our students right now is a trap. And some of you know it because you're sitting in it. And I want you to know my heart breaks for you, and I empathize with you. And I want you to know that that is why Dave Ramsey is going to have work to do for as long <laughs> as the time and world. Because here's what the good news about the gospel. You can break out of traps. And you're going to have to work, and you have to do it. But I encourage you to break out of that trap. And for those of you who are younger and you're sitting on the edge, what am I going to do right now? I encourage you to consider again whether you're going to go into that. If you could, by the way, you can afford a great school. That's amazing, and God bless you, and all the better and encouragement for you. But on a real practical level, if you're a teenager and you're being told this is the only way you're ever going to amount to anything, I mean, in Tennessee, God bless Tennessee, you can go to school for two years for free right now in here until you figure it out. Did you know what you were going to do, right? <laughs> did you, at 18 years old, did you know what you were going to do when you grew up? But back when I was younger, you could afford to be wrong at $50 a credit hour. Well, I guess that rock star thing wasn't really all that smart. Maybe I need to try something else. But man, you're one year in, two years on this thing, you're $40,000, $50,000 in. You can't afford to be wrong in this climate. It's a trap. And here's what I'm saying. The, the love of money, it sounds awful if it's Scrooge McDuck, but if it's I've grabbed hold of the American dream. And now it's leading me down this college loan idea because of this thing that might happen. Let me tell you what your future is going to look like. Can I prophesy for you? Quartz wrote an article <laughs> asking the question, yeah, Quartz, are we consuming too much? So those that have gotten on the other side, and you know, for us who are a little bit older, maybe we don't have the student loans, here's, the, here's what you have to look forward to. Households have never had so many material Goods, yet we hear constant reports of economic anxiety and feelings of hopelessness. And listen to this. Here's what they identified. The problem is living standards. Our expectations of what we should own have increased. I should own an iPhone. I should have high-speed internet. I should have... I mean, I don't know. The cable companies have done lost their minds. $150 a month. And you millennials are smart with your Netflix. And, but the world, what you should own keeps going up. But the numbers for incomes for many of us, according to this article, haven't gone up, have not. And the disconnect leaves households feeling vulnerable and struggling. There is no there. That's the trap. It's the constant if I keep going. Taking hold of the wrong hand. And for you baby boomers, New York Times article, I got bad news for you too. Did you know there's an entire industry right now that has cropped up around baby boomers getting rid of their stuff because your kids don't want it? <laughs> As a baby boomer, you spent the 80s, 90s, 70s acquiring stuff because that was the sign to your neighbors that you were keeping up. So it wasn't no longer just a nice home, a nice car, two kids and a wife. It was a really nice home with three or four cars and an iPhone. You acquire these things. You've got the nice furniture, the nice china cabinet, and your kids moved into a 600-square-foot apartment. They ain't got nowhere for it. So now, the industry, you pay $2,500 to $5,000 to get rid of the stuff that you paid for to begin with. And all we were doing was doing what we thought we were supposed to be doing, which is the American dream. I want to get this stuff because it'll make me happy. 
By the way, the solution that the culture has put on us is let's go tiny then. And some of you maybe in this room are even doing this. Let's go tiny. The, 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 the culture solution is we'll get rid of everything and we'll move into a 500 square foot tiny house. A few years in, the data is coming back that they're just as miserable. But they're miserable for different reasons. The laundry basket, you guys have a laundry basket in your house? And I got like four kids. We got like 20 laundry baskets. But, <laughs> but you can put them places. In your tiny house, it just sits there just taunting you from your, <laughs> from your dining room table <laughs> that folds into the wall and becomes a toilet. I, you know, I don't know how they... <laughs> but here's the best part of this article. This lady and her husband live in a 400 square foot efficiency apartment in New York, and they probably spend 5000 a month for it. She said, here's what they don't tell you about the tiny house. Not only does the laundry basket taunt you, but things happen that they don't tell you. When you cook, she mentioned specifically caramelized onions, okay? They stinketh. She said, in, in the large house, that'll sort of dissipate into the house. In the tiny house, that dissipates into your underwear and into your curtains and into you. And she specifically talks about a moisture-wicking undergarment that apparently has taken on the smell of onions that is, that is activated by sweat. <laughs> so at the most inopportune times, what's that smell? <laughs> that is the smell of tiny living. <laughs> Secularism tells us to get more or get less, but it's always about the stuff. Do I get more or do I get less? And the Bible says neither. Be content. The godliness with contentment is great gain. Not complacency, by the way, that the Bible has many things that we're not supposed to be content with. Our gifts, don't be content with that. Like, move forward and plow. But when it comes to what you've got, contentment is really just a simple act of faith to say that in this culture right now, I have, most people in this room, and if you don't, please see us. We'd like to help you. have got a roof over their head. You've got a door that shuts and locks. You've got a toilet that when you push a button, everything just magically disappears. Like that, that is in this culture, in this world, you are part of the one, maybe top 10% of the entire world. And to be content, which means not to be complacent because if we're working hard, God honors hard work. And you're getting ahead at your work. What it means is maybe if I'm getting ahead, I can make more impact with this, with this money. But if I don't get ahead and it doesn't happen with it, that that's just God's will anyway. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If it happens, it was because of God. If it doesn't happen, it was because of God. Either way, I'm content. Which helps understand why the second thing he talks about is letting go of arrogance and pride. And I think I put fear up here, but it's fear is the underlying thing, which is pride, that I have done this and I have to keep doing this. And if I don't, that it'll all go away. Command those who are rich. Most people in this world, you think that God looks at it from the United States version or from the world, right? He has a worldview. We are all being commanded in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment, which is why it doesn't say sell everything and walk away. We, we read the story of the rich man and, the, and the Jesus, the rich young ruler, sent him away. He said he wouldn't sell everything. And sometimes you extrapolate, well, I, if I don't sell everything, then I'm not. But he told Zacchaeus to sell half, and he told the centurion, he didn't tell him to sell anything. So the question is, is which one is God telling you to do? 
It isn't about that. He says, God provides everything richly for you to enjoy, which means I can't be arrogant about it because I recognize that God has done things for me that I didn't do, that I couldn't earn, that I couldn't have possibly chosen, not the least of which was being born in the United States of America. You didn't choose to be born here. So you were already 100 yards ahead in a 50-yard dash from the rest of the world because you were born here and you didn't choose to. And you could go down the road, especially those of you who have been successful or those of you who are in the process of pulling ahead on something and look back and say, if this didn't happen for me, if this didn't open up, if this door didn't, then I wouldn't be here. Otherwise, if I don't, then I get arrogant because I think I did it. There was, a, <laughs> there was a part of my life that I'm not necessarily proud of. Um, well, actually, there's many of those. But <laughs> this one that comes to mind was sitting across the table from a record label executive and me telling him about this brand new idea that I had for a company. It's me and my business partner, and I won't say the guy's name because you might know him. Um, and we were super excited about this. And it was frustrating because we're like, these guys aren't getting it. They just don't understand what we're saying. And then we realized most of them still had their AOL email address, and so they didn't understand the technology was changing. If you still have your AOL email address, uh, AOL... Uh, Congratulations. Um, but they didn't see what was coming down the pipeline, and so we were so excited. And this record label executive said, well, you guys are a little bit cocky, aren't you? Because what we were really selling was what was going to happen to companies like his and why we were going to be the ones to show him who was boss. So we're being a little bit cocky. Now, I should have taken that as a, maybe he's right. Maybe we should look into that. Instead, we changed the name of the company to Rooster Records and bought an oil painting with a giant rooster on it that sat in our office because we were cocky. <laughs> and I think back on that, was, we were super arrogant because I was, we'd, this band worked and this band worked. And, and I, you know, it's always, when you work in the music business, it's awful fun to tell about the bands that you signed that worked. You know, hey, this Cutlass thing that worked out, that, you know, whatever names. But what's no fun to say is that, yeah, I, I looked at Jennifer Knapp and said, yeah, it'll never work. Actually, nobody in this room even knows who that is. <laughs> okay. So you know how stupid that was. Okay. Reliant K CD comes across my desk. I get a call from the record label guy going, ooh, that'll never work. Just skinny dudes from Ohio. Singing about Marilyn Manson ate my girlfriend or some song. I don't know, some song. And I'm like, that'll never work. Three million records later. <laughs> My point is, is that the arrogance I had did not acknowledge that God's hand was on my life and allowed me to be in places that I had no business being in and things happening that I had no control over happening and I just happened to be there at the right time in the right place. And that also includes not only the good but the bad. Because many of us who have had some success in our life, we can get arrogant about it, but we forget that, man, there were some awful things that happened to us in our childhood and in our youth that actually fueled us to be who we are. I can't take credit for that. I can't take credit that my parents were on welfare for most of my childhood and we would get government lunches and some of you know this feeling. And we would, uh, in those days, I don't think they do it anymore because they got coached, but in those days they actually gave you a lunch card and you would have to go in and get it punched and it's like to get the five free lunches at uh, Soul Shine Pizza, but it's, but it's like your lunch. But if you were one of us, one of the poor kids, you got a different color lunch card. 
and they give you a smaller portion. So instead of two pieces of pizza, you got one. And there was the walk of shame with a little lunch card right up to my great aunt. Her name was Donna, and she looked like someone had just taken a pan and flattened her face, looked like a bulldog with jowls, and she was mean. You think I'm kidding. She's with Jesus now, so. But Aunt Donna hated my father because if her niece, my mom, wouldn't have married him, none of this had ever happened, and so she just looked at me with a sense of disgust. One more kid just eating off the system. Walking to Aunt Donna was the fuel that made me say, there has to be another way. So like 7th, 8th, ninth grade, I realized if you took a pack of bubble gum and you bought it at the quick station for 25 cents, that you could actually flip it by noon. I think it was, those little, it was like 10 packs of bubble gum is exactly what it was. They were like $1.50 or $2. And if you flipped it by noon, you could actually have enough money to buy lunch for yourself and Aunt Donna can stick it. <laughs> and there were days I wouldn't eat at all because there's no way I'm going to look at her face her. But during those days, I learned how to start a business. Seventh, eighth grade, flipping bubble gum. I learned about inventory control. You eat too much gum before noon, no lunch. <laughs> Soup Nazi, no food for you. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> and someday I want to thank Aunt Donna because it was even that fuel that drove me to be a hustler, really. I mean, it was, I've been self-employed for most of my life, and some of those entrepreneurial bents in me started from wanting to stick it to Aunt Donna. And I can't take credit for that either. <laughs> and at the time, I hated it, but here I am, right? Another reason where pride comes from in this, these, you can take a picture of this, but these, the hierarchy of needs. In mankind, and Dr. Beam might be able to help explain this better than I ever could, but psychologists believe that there's basically six basic human needs. And whether you're going for the Tony Robbins one or you're going for the Abraham Maslow one, that basically if these six needs are met, that you as a human will be fulfilled and satisfied. Money allows us to buy most of those. It does not allow us, however, to hold on to those. He says money is so uncertain and one of the prideful things is, is that because I've got these needs met in me, that I've got the need for physiological, the basic life needs. What does Paul say? That you're ba you've got your food and you've got your clothes. You, your basic needs are met. Money met those needs in my mind. Paul is saying, oh, no, no, God is meeting those needs. And when I go through each of these, the idea of esteem and confidence and significance is what Tony Robbins would say. That need is met if I've made a lot of money, now I'm significant, uh, relationships, you think, man, money can't buy you love? Have you hung out with rich people? If you don't define love the way that we should define love, you'd be surprised what kind of love they can get. But it, they don't hold on to it. It's uncertain. And here's why I bring this up today, because the pride of it is if I've done this to make myself fulfilled and myself uh, satisfied in my life, it will never be completely satisfied. In fact, Abraham Maslow said in 1967, you have to give up on the idea of heaven. He said that you can be, if you get all these things firing on all cylinders, you can have five minutes. He called it peak performance, 
peak state. But it is only five minutes and then it's over. You have to give up on the idea of heaven. What he's saying is I can get all six of these done and I'm still not satisfied. If you're a biblical student, you might recognize that six is the number of, man, seven is the number of perfection. You can climb the ladder to the top and you're still one rung short. What C.S. Lewis wrote sums this up so beautifully. Because the idea that if I get all these fulfilled, I'm, now I'm going to be happy. I've got the girl, I've got the money, and then, I've got, and then you realize it's just all a giant game of Jenga. And one falls out and the whole thing falls apart. Because I've grabbed hold of this. And I'm saying let go of your pride and let go of your arrogance and recognize what C.S. Lewis says. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. These fall short because it's just mankind and it'll never get you there because you weren't made for this world. That desire, C.S. Lewis believed and I believe with him, is part of the proof of God. Do you think a fish floats around thinking, man, I wonder what it's like somewhere else? Like an existential crisis in the (laughs) fishbowl. Do you think they even know what water is? We were made for another world. And that helps us to, verse 18 and 19, to take hold of the life that is truly life. Letting go of my arrogance and my fear, letting go of this temporal thing that won't, and taking the hand of Jesus. He says in verse 18, 19, to command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I don't know if that rings a bell for you or not, but Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 told us, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth. Store up for yourself, verse 20, treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now some have taken that to extrapolate it and say we should never save money and I could, we don't have time today to say that that's erroneous. But I was thinking about what Jesus was talking about and what Paul was talking about. You've probably heard it said that there's only one thing you can take to heaven with you. Right, naked into this earth you came, naked you leave. And they'll say that it's people, people you have won to Jesus. That's who you can take with you. That's a true statement, by the way, 100% true. But there is something else that you can send ahead of you. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. Jesus would tell a story of a shrewd manager in Luke chapter 6. We don't have time to turn there, but it's a fascinating exchange. He tells a story of this manager who knew that his time was almost up at this company, that it was going to be over. And he knew that he would be out and he would be on his own. And he would need friends on the other side. And so the manager went to clients and said, you owe us $1,000, I'm going to knock it down to $500. You owe us $500, I'm going to knock it down to zero. And it says that in doing so, he made friends for himself so that when he was out of a job, these friends would then, well, it says, welcome him into, welcome you into. The money that I have, if it's not mine, when I am rich in good deeds, okay, I'm laying up a foundation for the life that is truly life. When we send money, we're going to send $5,000 of your money 
our money to Uganda that's going to be a church and it's going to uh, be a well. There's going to ultimately be a school and these little boys and girls are going to find Jesus and their lives are going to be changed forever. What he's saying is you're taking, because Jesus commended him, which at first I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. He's commending him for being shady, seemingly. But the word shrewd has a negative connotation. And his word in the original language is more like he was really being smart. He was recognizing the rules of the game that he was in and dealing with the rules as they were, not as he wanted them to be. Now, here's what that means. We send money ahead. There are going to be little boys and girls. There's going to be little old ladies who find Jesus, whose lives are going to be forever changed because of your generosity, you being rich in good deeds, you being generous and sharing so that they might welcome you into eternity. Have you seen that little video that's floated around of that little old man who had rescued all these Jewish people from the Holocaust, from death camps? And he didn't remember, you know what I'm talking about? He's sitting there, I should have brought it. He's sitting there and he doesn't know that the room is full of people that he rescued. And they all stood and clapped and we wept. And Now imagine you sitting in heaven in a room full of little Haitians and little Africans and little people from Columbia, Tennessee, little, who, if they happen to beat you into heaven, will be there to welcome you into eternity. That's what he's saying. This isn't my money to begin with. I'm just being rich in good deeds because I get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And he says, I don't miss anything. These people will fully know as we are fully known. Man, those little kids in Kenya, oh, can you imagine being welcomed into eternity by that standing ovation? He has invited us to participate in it. And that is the life that is truly life. Dolores and Bonnie, Mom, when you guys are at Place of Hope, you've sacrificed a lot. You've sacrificed a, you could be doing anything, but you're there rescuing people who can't possibly save themselves from drug and alcohol addiction. You are rich in good deeds. Rich in good deeds. And I want to challenge all of us, and I can look around this room and start picking us out. I know what some of y'all are doing, and I know some of you, you're on the edge, and you think, man, I've talked myself out of it because I don't, I'm not smart enough, or I might fail, or I might risk. I want to encourage you today to push past that fear, to let go of the hope that is a false hope, and take hold of the true and living God in Jesus, and be rich in those good deeds. Hebrews 10.24 says, it is my job to provoke you to do good things. We have opportunities in this church right now. You know what's a good deed? Standing out there and smiling as someone drives in the parking lot. Loving on our deputy who's out there who may or may not know Jesus. I don't know. Loving on our littles, bringing coffee in. Let me tell you what. <laughs> That's a good deed, Chris and Tasha. You guys were a good deed this morning. <laughs> Bonus points because <laughs> you made the coffee. You can send that stuff ahead. And some of you, it's time for you to start here, maybe getting out and pushing into that a little bit. And for some of you, I want you to come with me to Uganda this year because I want you to meet some of these kids that are going to welcome you into eternity. I want to meet some of the, the little old lady that we cast the demon out of last year. You want to meet her? Amen. Dude. She found Jesus. She's going to beat me to heaven. <laughs> and she'll be there, clear eyes, vision, and high-fiving us in. So David, would you join us and tell us if those, we've got Guatemala, we've got Uganda, and we've got Haiti this year still to come. 
How and, can they get in that? And uh, in Nepal as well. So Nepal. yes, we have uh, multiple opportunities, guys. And so I just want to encourage you, if um, if you're interested in that at all, if what Darren is sharing this morning is is moving you to a place. Maybe you've been on the fence. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you've wanted to. Maybe you've dreamt about it. Uh, I would just encourage you to let that set in. How powerful of a thought that, man, our whole country, everything we know and understand here is the entire idea of America was financed by somebody else. Because I hear that a lot. I know that's the number one thing that people, I want to go, but I can't afford that. And so, uh, man, that's just, that's really good, Darren. That, those are incredible dots to be connecting. Um, so I encourage you, if, you're, if that's happening in your heart, if it's not happening in your heart, you're free. You get a free pass because I'm not here to try to convince you to go or do something that it's, isn't even on your radar. If, if the Lord's not moving on you to do that, then you're fine. Stay exactly where you're at and keep seeking him and what he is speaking to you. But if he's moving on your heart to go, we have Guatemala is our next trip coming up. And it's coming up kind of fast. It seems like it's a, a ways out, but we have deadlines for our registration. Our deadline to sign up for Guatemala is actually just in a couple of weeks. That trip is June 9th through the 19th. It's right after school gets out. It is a summer trip. So if you're enrolled in school through the year, or if you have children or what obligations because of the school year, Guatemala is your first available trip to be able to participate outside of that. Right after that, we have Uganda coming up. It's July 9th through the 19th. It's a couple days longer because it's a little further away. Still in the summer. Absolutely, but we're going as early as we can so you can get back. We've got several uh, school administrators who are trying to participate in this trip too, so we're trying to fit it in as early as we can so you can get back and have plenty of time to get ready for the next school year. After that, we've got Nepal and Haiti coming up as well. <clears throat> I just want to encourage you guys. If, you, if you're interested in these trips, come down and see me. I'm going to be down here. We've got a sign-up sheet. You can sign up. Just leave information that's non-committal. That is not you registering for the trip. It's just saying, hey, I'd like to know some more information. I specifically brought more business cards. I'd be happy to give you my card, all of my information. If you want to have coffee or something sometime this week, I'd love to sit down with you personally and talk to you about it more, give you all the information you need. But I just want to leave you with that, guys. If we... If we leave this morning and we're considering anything on the idea of participating in a missions trip, I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. If it has been on your heart or your radar at all, why not now? Why not this year? Why not? If you are interested in Africa, why not this African trip? And if you can answer that, then well done. Keep serving God and keep moving. But I, I want us all to just chew on this message. It's such a great message this morning. If we can answer that for ourselves, I should prayerfully consider it. So if you're interested in that, come down and see me. I am going to the Connect afterwards. So if you stick around and you can't see me here, you can come find us over there. We want to get as much information into your guys' hands as possible. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, David. And Mo's going to have a little blue folder if you want to volunteer locally here and just be rich in good deeds with our church family. Uh, we just have the application so you can fill it out so we know how to find you and, and figure out where you best fit. Would you stand to your feet? I want to read something to you because you could leave a message like this and get caught up in the idea that I've got to do this so that God is happy with me. I want you to cast that out of your mind right now because it's ridiculous and it's satanic. 
He's just inviting you. Say, hey, I'm going to Africa this year. You want to go with me? That's just God's invitation. I'm going to Guatemala. You want to go with me? I'm going to the, kill, to, to the parking lot. I'm going to the nursery. You want to go with me? It's doing something with God, not for God. This book, The Story of With by Alan Arnold is a great book, but he says, I believed God could make all things new. I just never realized it was me who needed to be made new. And though slowly at first I began to see that God would father me if I simply allowed myself to be a son. I no longer had to have all the answers. My validation wasn't tied to the approval of others. My goal wasn't my, and this is why it's important today, my Jesus to-do list to get completed, but simply to do whatever I did with God. And that's the story of With by Alan Arnold. Uh, that's my invitation for you this morning, to go out and to be rich in good deeds, to just take that walk with God, to let go of those things that are, and for those of you, we're gonna have another Financial Peace University class, so if that's your fight and you're trying to get out of that, we wanna do whatever we can to help you on that, but let's pray. Jesus, We're so thankful. Yeah, you could have done this any way you wanted to, and somehow, in some reason, you chose partnering with us to do this. Like, letting go of this world isn't a burden, it's brilliant. Letting go of my arrogance and my pride isn't harsh, that's kind, it's freedom for us to get to join you today. I pray, Lord, that those who are young, maybe they won't fall into the trap. And those of us who are a little bit older, that we continue just to gazelle-like intensity, fight our way for the freedom. And that ultimately, Lord, we take hold of you, take hold of you, Jesus, for eternity, sending ahead brothers and sisters to welcome us there. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.